All right, students, welcome back. We're gonna talk about books three and four of the Odyssey today, but quickly we're gonna recap book two because I feel like I didn't go through the speech of Telemachus quite well enough. So very quickly, I'm going to mention this and mention a couple more names that I didn't mention last time. So Telemachus calls the assembly. Something interesting about this is he sits in his father's chair, which means he is taking his father's place, which means he is attempting to fill his father's shoes. The only problem is his father is Odysseus, who is a great war hero, and he is himself a lumpy teenager. And so will he fill his father's shoes very well? No, not at this point, not at this point. That will be part of the building's Roman of this story. And so Aegyptios addresses the crowd. And this is the first assembly since Odysseus left, so people are pretty excited. They're pretty much, they're like, wow, this might be something we're seeing. This might be the sort of assembly that Odysseus run and then they they're treated to Telemachus speaking and well what is it that Telemachus has to say well in lines 40 to 81 he does have quite a bit to say first he says that he is suffering two evils the first is the loss of a father which is a terrible evil to have to suffer and of course not growing up with his father as well the second he makes a direct uh, not threat so much as he directly exposes the evil of the suitors to the public. He says, it's like putting a hashtag on uh, a picture of someone doing something wrong on Instagram these days, outing them. What he does is he says that the suitors are eating up my substance. Well, Antinous then responds. And what Antinous says is, well, your mother has used that deceitful loom and uh, the, has used that, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? <laughs> has used as an excuse weaving this web for three years, which he unweaves at night, which we found out for one of the serving ladies now. And, well, your mom is really beautiful, like Tiro or Alcmene. And Alcmene was the mother of Heracles, who Zeus coupled with, and so she's known to be very beautiful. And so Antinous says, we're for sure not going to leave. And then Halitherses, he's a prophet, he speaks up and he says, well, you suitors, it might be in your best interest to leave because I made a prophecy 20 years ago that Odysseus would return with great vengeance in his heart in 20 years, unrecognized by those who see him. And so, hmm, Eurymachus hears this and says, uh, why don't you save your prophecies for your own children, Halitherses? I don't care for those prophecies, not one bit, and we don't fear anybody as suitors, especially not Telemachus. And then Mentor speaks up. I erroneously said that this was Athena. This is actually just regular Mentor in this case. He speaks up against Eurymachus. He says, Odysseus was kind, a good king. Is this how we repay him? And why are you all silent to the public? You know, so often there is a silent majority in the public, people who refuse to stand out, who will stick to the school of fish, to the middle of the herd. Uh, and why are you all silent at this outrage? And the public stays silent. Well, as we know from yesterday, Leocritus then speaks up and says, I don't think that Telemachus will accomplish anything. And if he wants a ship, he should find it himself, or you mentors should give it to him. And let's dismiss this assembly. And so it's a disaster for Telemachus, an absolute disaster for him, except, except for he's going to get a little bit of help, sort of like all of you. When you're young, you don't know how to do things so well, but you will. How is it that we get you from not knowing how to do things to knowing how to do things very well? Do we expect perfection from you immediately? No. What is it that so often your coaches, teachers, and parents do for you whenever you're trying to do something new? Yes? The teacher. 
They teach you. They help you out. They help scaffold it for you. Right. And so, who is the one who is attempting to teach Telemachus to be an adult, to take responsibility for himself? Now, yes? Athena. Athena. And so she comes and she acts as his mentor. So, Telemachus prepares to set out. So, Telemachus, on orders from Athena, who is in disguise as mentor now, then orders provisions for the journey from Eurycleia, while Athena, looking like Telemachus, gets a ship from Noenon and convinces several young men to sail with Telemachus. So I want you to see just how much she helps out here. She gets the ship and the men for Telemachus. All he has to do is go to Eurycleia, swear her to secrecy, which he does, and get the food. Also, all he has to do is go where? Home. He doesn't even have to go out into the village and convince the young men to come with him. Athena will do that for him. So who's doing more at this point, Athena or Telemachus? Athena, because she's sort of like, you might say, the motor on the engine, or you might say the, uh, well, the training wheels next to him. Can he balance on his own at this point? No, he's got to learn how to. He's got to build that skill into himself. He's not yet capable of drawing people to him with his natural charisma. Not yet. All right. Well, they board and leave. leave. And in fact, Telemachus swears Eurycleia to, uh, to secrecy. We might as well read that really quickly. Let's open our books to book two, uh, lines 371 to 376. If you can find them in this edition, I know the books aren't at the bottom, and that is sort of annoying. It's definitely annoying to me, especially because I try and look so fast so often. So I believe this is on page, in my edition, 48. Same for you. All right. Let's start with Eurycleia. In fact, let's start with 361. Book 2, 361. So he spoke, and the dear nurse Eurycleia cried out, and bitterly lamenting, she addressed him in winged words. Why, my beloved child, has this intention come into your mind? Why do you wish to wander over much country, you and only in loved sons? So she calls him like a son. Illustrious Odysseus has perished far from his country in some outlandish region, and these men will devise evils against you, the suitors, on your returning. No, you shall die by guile, that's by deceit, and they divide all that is yours. No, but stay here and guard your possessions. It is not right for you to wander off and suffer hardships on the wide barren or the barren wide sea. So that's a very tricky bit. Your clan, on the one hand, is being very motherly. She wants the safety of Telemachus. She wants his possessions to be guarded. But you might say that she's also being overprotective. Because if Telemachus really wants to protect his possessions, is he going to be able to stay at home and stay a child? Can he protect his possessions in that way? No, they're just going to keep getting eaten up. So what does he have to do? He has to go abroad and acquire what? Experience, experience and thus skill. And then bring that experience and skill back in order to deal with the situation in a new way. Is that correct? That is precisely what he must do. And so, let's see if he's got the right stuff here. Do not fear, nurse. This plan was not made without a god's will. Ah. But swear to tell my beloved mother nothing about this. This is the promise that she must make, that if she were to reveal this information to the suitors, they would be able to use this to ambush and kill Telemachus if she were disloyal. So if they don't use this information because they don't acquire it from her, is she disloyal? No. But swear to tell my beloved mother nothing about this until the eleventh day has come or twelfth hereafter, or until she misses me herself or hears I am absent. 
so that she may not ruin her lovely skin with weeping. So he spoke, and the old man, or the old woman, swore to the gods a great oath. And after she had sworn to it and completed the oath-taking, she drew wine in the handled jars at once thereafter and poured his barley into bags stitched strongly of leather. But Telemachus went back into the house and joined the suitors. All right. So, Eurycleus swear is sworn to secrecy. She is only allowed to tell Penelope that Telemachus has left on the twelfth day after he's gone, when Penelope can't do anything about it, or when Penelope directly asks him about that, or asks her about the whereabouts of Telemachus. In fact, Penelope will ask her, Eurycleia will cry, and say that she was sworn to secrecy. Soon enough. All right, book three. Super speed across the sea to the mainland. Pylos. Telemachus is sailing with several young men, as well as with Athena, who is disguised as Mentor. Actual Mentor is actually still on Ithaca, which will cause a funny bit of confusion at one point. When one person swears that he saw Mentor get on the ship with, uh, with Telemachus, but could have sworn that he saw Mentor going about in the marketplace the day before. And so, we reach Pylos, where a large sacrifice is occurring. And so something good to note about arriving at a place with people who are giving a sacrifice, so that if they are sacrificing, who is it that they must honor? The gods. And who is the top god? Zeus. And what is it that Zeus maintains above all other gods? Order by means of what between humans? Starts with an X. The Xenia. And what is the Xenia? The what-what relationship? Guest hosts. So if you show up at a place that's sacrificing to the gods, then what do you know that they will honor? The guest host relationship. So do you know whether this is an enemy or whether this is an ally when you approach this place of sacrifice? Yes, you do. And this is certainly an ally because they will honor the Xenia. Good. And so... These strangers, Telemachus and his men, or rather mentor, are invited in. Telemachus reveals that he is the son of Odysseus. In fact, he will be noticed as the son of Odysseus by Menelaus and Helen in Book 4. And Nestor says that he could talk for years about Odysseus, and they will share tears at one point. Um, uh, there will be, and there will be tears everywhere we go, here and Sparta. For Telemachus will cry for the loss of his father in the same way that Nestor and his sons will cry for the loss of Antilochus. And so, he tells the story of Menelaus being blown off by a mighty storm. Diomedes, Idomeneus, Philoctetes, Nestor, and Neoptolemus, they all get home safely, but Menelaus is blown down to Egypt. And perhaps because of his wide travels, he has some additional information about Odysseus. And so, he then says, he tells the story of Clytemester's betrayal of Agamemnon. And we know this well, so I'll only very quickly go through it. Clytemester took on the lover Aegisthus, who was himself motivated to kill Agamemnon because of the death of his own father and the loss of his crown, uh, which was actually Agamemnon's sordid tale. Aegisthus and Clytemester then kill Agamemnon when he comes back from Troy. Aegisthus installs himself as leader for several years, I believe it is seven years. Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, then comes back 
and slays Aegisthus and Clytemestra for their crimes against his father and against the Mycenaean crowd. And so Nestor says, All that said, I know about so many of these Achaeans. I know about Menelaus. I know about Agamemnon and his fate. I know much of all of them and their doings, but I do not know the whereabouts of your father. And so if you want to try somebody that might know more, you might try Menelaus, who has traveled even more broadly or broader than I have. In fact, you can take my son, Pesistratus, and you can either take a ship or you can take a chariot. And you can run across the land or go across the water. And there you can question Menelaus and the most beautiful woman ever to have existed, Helen. Mm. The book ends with each of the people returning to their beds and going to sleep. Very similar, and it, it's interesting to what extent um, Pesistratos is in the same room. I believe, as, as Telemachus is. It recalls to me very much the same scene as when uh, Patroclus and Achilleus go to bed in the same tent, though each with his own concubine. In any case, we go to see Nestor. We meet Nestor. We meet the ne great man of Nestor. He's very impressive. We speak to him. It's very intimidating for Telemachus. Telemachus uh, uh, asks Nestor after uh, his father. And, ah, yes, a sign is shown. This is one thing I should mention. After Nestor and Telemachus speak, Mentor, and this is very bizarre, turns into a giant bird of prey. It's either a hawk or an eagle, and flies off. And in seeing this, Nestor knows that Telemachus has been accompanied by a what? A god. And since Telemachus has been accompanied by a god, he must be very like Pooh, who was often accompanied by a goddess who loved him so much. Odysseus. And so Nestor observes a similarity between whom and whom? The father and son, Telemachus and Odysseus. And in him noticing a similarity between Odysseus and Telemachus, who also notices a similarity between Odysseus and himself? Telemachus. Because who is it that has to become an adult and take on the mantle of responsibility? And so does that help or hurt that he sees a similarity between him and his great father? Possibly produces what in his chest? Which great feeling of being sort of pumped up confidence? That's a good word. Pride, sure. Hope, inspiration. It inspires him. It probably motivates him to keep moving forward. It's positive indication that he's making progress, that he is the right stuff, like we were saying. All right, let's talk very quickly about book four. So, again, notice how it is or what it is that a people are doing when we approach them in the Odyssey. So often we will meet strange peoples. We'll meet, uh, we'll meet giants called, called the Cyclopes. We'll meet other giants called the Lystragones. We'll meet some people called the Cicones, who are Thracians, essentially. We'll meet Lotus Eaters. We'll meet Spartans. We'll meet Pylians. We'll meet Ithacans. And in every place... The first thing we'll have to determine is, are these people blanks or blanks? What is that that we have to determine? Enemies or friends, exactly. And so, what is it that we see happening at Sparta when we first approach there? Ah, well, there is a great feast in preparation for a wedding. A feast. A feast is a place at which you give libations. You pour out wine. And also you make great 
sacrifices of food. Again, what we said, if you see a people giving a sacrifice, you know that they revere the what's? The gods, and especially the top god, Zeus. Top god Zeus protects the what? The zinnia. The zinnia is the what? The household or the guest host relationship. So if you see people conducting a feast where they had to make a sacrifice for a wedding, another honoring of the gods sort of moment. The gods are actually present at several weddings, including Orpheus and Eurydice's and uh, Achilles, not Achilles, excuse me, uh, Peleus and Thetis's, Achilles's father. It means that these are friends. These are people that will treat you as a guest who will not eat you or try to kill you, both of which we will see are options that uh, people attempt in the Odyssey. In fact, we'll see people get eaten, we'll see people get drugged, We'll see people get drugged again. We'll see people get attacked. All sorts of things will happen. And well, who is this wedding for? And this is a very interesting moment. Well, something to know about Menelaus and Helen is that they have only had one child, and they will only have one child. And they had that child before the Trojan War, and her name was Hermione. So if you're a big reader of Harry Potter, you know where the name Hermione comes from. Very good. And so that's their daughter. She is about to be married off to Neoptolemus, which is going to be a problem for Neoptolemus because originally she was betrothed to Orestes. You don't take things from Orestes. You don't take kingdoms from Orestes. If you're Augustus, he'll kill you. You don't take women from Orestes either. He might kill you. Yes, sir? Orestes is uh, the son of Agamemnon. Quite right. Then why is he marrying his Ah, sir, that is so often the case. So often it was the case that the nobles would try and keep the, uh, you might say that, and this even, uh, this, this stays true through medieval European history as well as through um, even later European history. If you want to look it up, you can look up the Hopsburgs or this sort of thing. Often people of equivalent rank marry each other. Often they're related at this time. Uh, and even in the time of Europe, and I'd have to study up on my history a bit, but there have been several times when the king of England, the king of France, and the king of Spain with, between the years of 1200 and 1900 have been related to some extraordinary extent. In fact, if, if I ever do get a chance to teach a history course, I look forward to learning that all alongside of me because often the people in power are related to some extent, sort of like the gods are. Yes? Do you know whether why society started to look down on incest? Oh, well, yes, certainly. And yes, well, you know, uh, actually, society didn't do it for that long within the scope of known history because defects were known to have happened. But um, the idea seems to be that the more sophisticated our technology became and the more we became able to study genetics, the more we could see actual genetic defects under microscope. And so that's the taboo always existed, but now we just know the good science behind the taboo. And you might say that the taboo is sort of, it follows the same principle as why Telemachus must leave home. You must go out into the world and process new information to increase known territory. You must go out into the world and meet somebody who is not just from home to increase your relation or to strengthen relations between people, something like that. I don't know. Yes? Would early humans have done incest just that's an interesting question. I mean, that word itself is tricky because it is defined, at least in America, 
uh, legally by state and what is technically what counts as that like say in Georgia it must be you are not allowed to marry your first cousin but you can marry your second cousin so at what point is somebody far removed enough from you to where they are marriageable but not so far removed from you that they're so different that you're not attracted and so it's like a tricky balance it's a tricky balance especially if you're going to make it legal um, in any case that is a great question. It is an anthropological question, and we'll consider it a little during the course of this class, but that it goes a little bit beyond the scope. But when did that become a taboo? It's an excellent question. We should look that up. All right, in any case, here's the second uh, pair. So Hermione is getting married to Neoptolemus. That marriage won't last long, uh, just to give you some drama. The next marriage is between Megapenthes and Elector's daughter. And you say, Elector's daughter, what's her name? We don't know. Her name's Elector's daughter, as far as we're concerned. And so Megapenthes, his name actually means mega-suffering. Lots of suffering. And you say, why is his name that? And I say, well, and I'm making a bit of a face here. The thing is, he's not Helen's son, but he is Menelaus' son. Which means that Menelaus had to, by means of a concubine, have a son so that Sparta could have a legitimate ruler. Which means that the person that will rule Sparta after the death of Helen and Menelaus, or at least after Menelaus, will be Menelaus' son, but not Helen's. Which means, what for their marriage, exactly? Well, it means that in some way it doesn't bear fruit because Hermione their only child is a daughter she's going to be married off to another man who's then going to become so she's then going to become part of his family but who from Menelaus and Helen will stay in Sparta as a representative of them to carry on their tradition nobody and it's as if it's a metaphor for the relationship between Helen and Menelaus who has that been good for? Nobody. Really nobody. Not the Trojans, that's for sure, and not many of the Achaeans. And so it's like a fruitless marriage. And it is a barren marriage now. Nothing more will come from it. In fact, we will see soon that so sad are Helen and Menelaus at night when they entertained, when they entertain Telemachus that they have to put a small drug from Egypt into the wine, a drug called heartsease, a drug that uh, apparently makes it so that even if your brother or father were to have died that day, that you would not cry. Does that sound like a powerful drug? Yeah, and it's probably one that makes you numb in some way, some sort of opioid. Well, in any case, as Telemachus and Pisistratos approached Menelaus, Menelaus is having a feast, and Menelaus is one of his men thinking he's helping named Etionius goes up to Menelaus, he says, these people just came, should we allow them here at the feast? And Menelaus goes ape on him, like I went ape earlier. He goes, he goes, no, how dare you ask that, Edeonius? Asking that question as if we're, I were a mean man who did not have enough food to entertain somebody. Menelaus is rich. When you're rich, you like to show off your what? Your riches, right. You like to show it off. You like to give. In fact, Aristotle, a fourth century philosopher, will say, a mark of the great souled man, the megalosuchia, the magnanimous man, is that he prefers to give than to receive. So you prefer to be more like Santa Claus, more than like the child who receives from Santa Claus. You're all staring at me like you're crazy, Mr. Kid. 
the presents. You want to get the presents. And I'm like, maybe you want to give the presents. In any case, Menelaus is offended by his own man even asking him that question. He says, honor the Zinnia immediately. Bring up seats for them. Feed them. That's how it works here. Come on. All right. And then Menelaus speaks about how he attained all his vast wealth. And so he tells us the story of Egypt and his journey from Troy, but also the cost. And though he's acquired much experience, much travel, much wealth, he's one of the most powerful, richest men alive. He's also one of the poorest. Because though he's acquired much, what has he lost? Even more. Much time fighting for Helen. Many friends. Antilochus, Achilleus, who was his friend, his brother of all people. Agamemnon, who he loved for all his flaws, as we all love our brothers and sisters for all their flaws, right? We would all agree that they're pretty flawed individuals, yes? And we know better than anyone. And yet, and so he traveled to Cyprus, Phoenicia, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, Arimbal, Sidonia, all places across northern Africa. And um, mostly places across northern Africa, so he has known unknown territory. He has done things that other people have never done or experienced. And so he is very wise. And yet to become wise, you must also endure great what? Hardship. Great hardship, great suffering. That is part and parcel of experience. Yes? Would the Ethiopians at the time actually honor those gods, or did the Greeks just say that they did? That's an interesting question. The fact that it's called Ethiopia, that is a Greek name, suggests to me that they did speak... A Greek dialect at that time and probably if they've received that language they've also received the customs and the gods as well at least some group of them right and the reason it's still called Ethiopia is because of that Greek influence very good those northern African countries have some Greek European influences Egypt Libya Libya is where Carthage was that was the great enemy of Rome there's a there's a lot that goes on in that general area in any case in any case good Let's see if we can get this to move. All right. Good, 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 good. So as we were saying, Edeonius approached Menelaus. You don't need to write that again. He tells him two strangers, Pisistratos and Telemachus, have arrived on chariot. Let them in or send them away. Menelaus reprimands Edeonius, lines 32 to 35. Let them in. Just as we too have been given hospitality, let us give it. And I think that's a good reason to treat others as you wish to be treated. Are you often treated well by people who do not kill you and often give you gifts of information and skill instead, specifically your teachers and coaches? Yes, and so what are you expected to do in the future? Pass it on, treat other people in the right way. That's right, exactly. And so Telemachus and Pesistratos are bathed and fed as the hospitality demands, even before revealing their names. Telemachus then mentions to Pesistratos that there is so much bronze here. Look at how it shines. In fact, I'll open up to, um, to line 70 or so. This book four. Book four. So let's see if we can find it. Yes? Was bronze worth more during this time or was gold? Uh, gold would have been, but bronze is still pretty nice. And so, so he spoke and taking in his hands the fat beef line moving on. They put their hands to good things. And then Telemachus, this is line 69, talked to the son of Nestor, Pesistris, leaning his head close to him. So that none of the others might hear. Son of Nestor, you who delight my heart, only look at the gleaming of the bronze all through the, these echoing mansions, and the gleaming of gold and amber or silver and of ivory. The court of Zeus on Olympus must be like this on the inside, such abundance of everything. Wonder takes me as I take as I look on it. And so what's interesting about this is that uh, 
just from a socioeconomic level, Telemachus comes from a much poorer place than Sparta. Ithaca is rocky, jacked, has goats rather than horses. His home, not nearly as beautiful or full of precious gems or structures as Menelaus is. So when he looks around, he's taken by wonder because it's like the first time he's ever been in a really nice mansion. And when he looks around, he's like, wow, this must be like who, like whose house? Zeus's or the gods, because as far as he's concerned, this is the nicest place he's ever been. And so this is now what he imagines the house of a god would be like. And well, Menelaus actually reprimands him in a way that Odysseus will reprimand others. Just as others will call Odysseus godlike in his appearance, and he'll say, no, no, no. The gods have nothing to worry about. I have lots to worry about as a human. I'm nothing like a god. Uh, Menelaus here will say, no, no. The house of Zeus is very different from my own. Much, much, much nicer. Which is like, wow. This is the nicest place I've ever seen. This is the nicest place I can imagine. Nicer than this? Amazing. Yes. Didn't Odysseus have a chance to become a god, though? Yes, but not an Olympian god. So he would still be living in a cave on a very nice island if he became God. But he would be isolated and alone. Would he externally be worse than mortal? Uh, I don't know that he would receive any additional powers from becoming a God. Mostly he'd just get to be alone with Calypso forever. Uh, and he's already sort of, well, if you read book five, he's already crying on the beach hoping to leave her. So staying with her forever, well, heaven or hell. So, yeah, precisely. And so paradise, even paradise can be a hell. Very good. I suppose it depends to some extent on your perspective. In any case, it must be like the gods Menelaus overhears him, overhells him, and says, no mortal could rival Zeus and still calls them children. Later, Odysseus will also refuse the comparison. Okay. This is important. Menelaus begins to speak. Though I have been to many exotic places, the cost was great, my brother was killed, and though I collected much wealth, gives me no pleasure. I would give up two-thirds of my wealth for my friends dead at Troy to come back. The costs are great. Menelaus then says, these young men, they probably already know this and know about him from their father that he grieves most for lost Odysseus. Interesting. And when he says this, Telemachus begins to weep. And because of Telemachus weeping, and the shape of his hands, and his feet, and the look on his face, his countenance, Menelaus, poof, figures out, bing, light off above his head. This must be the son of Odysseus. He can recognize Odysseus in his son because of his features. So he must share some what's with his father. Some similarities. Many. Physical as well as the look in his eyes supposedly is similar to his father. You know how people have a look? Right. Exactly. What was the question back there? Yes. Oh, I was going to ask, do you think he'll give up, do you think he'll give up all his wealth? No, because then he'd be poor and then he would have to be taken care of by his friends and wouldn't be an independent person himself. So I think he's being smart when he says that. He's like, I give away as much as I could to stop from being a burden to others. Which strikes me as the smartest way to be generous. Because if you give away everything you have, then other people have to be generous to you. You should just catch them in the first place, right? 
Yeah, in, in any case. This is part of our theme of nothing is as it seems. Because we see Telemachus, is he in disguise? Has he, insofar as you are not, you, your identity is not yet revealed, are you in disguise? Yes, because somebody does not see you for what you are. And so with, acquire, with noticing details about Telemachus, you can reveal who he is to yourself by connecting what you see in front of you with your knowledge from the past, which means that in order to reveal to yourself the meaning of a situation, you must con you must connect present circumstances to past uh, past patterns or events. Interesting. So, like connecting how Odysseus looked to to, to uh, Menelaus to how this current man looks and speaks in front of him. And so Menelaus decides to let Telemachus reveal himself. All right, this is going to be the last bit that we talk about today, and the last bit that we get through this semester. Helen descends from her chambers. And my goodness, you should consider this a cinematic slow motion moment. This is the first time ever Telemachus has seen a woman like this. Who's he usually hanging out with? Eurycleia, his old nurse? He doesn't know anybody like Helen. You should imagine this is like seeing Marilyn Monroe in a fine evening gown. Or, or Kim Kardashian in the flesh, something like that. You might hate on her on Instagram and all of this and that, but I can just tell you this. If you were to see someone famous like that, done up in tens of thousands of dollars worth of jewels and dresses, it would make an impression on you. And so that's Helen. She's descending. And this young man is like, he's like, whoa! 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 And so, she immediately points out, this again, I think, shows the dissonance between her and Menelaus. They are not of one mind, like Penelope and Odysseus will be. Like, so often we will hear in this text, that the greatest thing that you can have is a good marriage, because it's hateful to your enemies and good for your friends. But again, we will see here that this marriage is a bit fractured, uh, not quite perfect, because whereas Menelaus, noticing from the glances of the eyes, the hands, the head, of Telemachus that this boy is clearly the boy of his good friend Odysseus, well, he decides to let Telemachus reveal himself for himself. Not the case with Helen. She immediately points out when she sees Telemachus, that looks just like Odysseus. And so we see that she is very sharp-eyed, as we noted in the Iliad, but also that she and her husband do not quite think alike, that they see situations differently. And we certainly know that's the case from Helen and Paris leaving Menelaus in the first place, right? All right, good. And so, the sister toast then takes this moment to ask about Odysseus's whereabouts. It's all on the table now. We know who we all are. Menelaus, Helen, Pisistratos, son of Nestor, and Telemachus, son of Odysseus. It's clear that now Telemachus is here to get information from Menelaus about Odysseus, and he does have some information to provide. First, Menelaus expresses his great love and says he would empty Ithaca and bring them as neighbors to Menelaus. He would build a house for Odysseus, Make it a house right next to him. Unfortunately, Odysseus likes to be ruler of his own land. Probably would not accept this, but does Menelaus like Odysseus? Yes, he's very well disposed towards him. <coughs> Something about being a very effective human, being a very skillful human, being a very resourceful human, makes people like you because you're capable of doing what? Getting things done. In any case, all the company then weeps for those they've lost. Pisistratos for Antilochus, Helen for Paris, just kidding. 
probably for all the times he's lost. Menelaus for his brother Agamemnon. Uh, Paisistratos then speaks in beautiful language and asks after tales of his father. Yet I can have no objection to tears for any mortal who dies and goes to his destiny. Helen then continues and says, Okay, we've spent enough time crying. We've seen a lot of tears in this text already. We've seen Penelope cry. We've seen uh, Nestor cry. We've seen uh, Eurycleia cry. We've seen Menelaus cry. We've seen Telemachus cry. We've seen Paisistratos cry. Is there a lot of, are there lots of tears after war? Absolutely. And so, Menelaus agrees that it's time to get the crying out of the way before dinner. Have some time to set aside to cry. So you can have your studying, 30 minutes, let's say two hours, then 30 minutes to cry, and then dinner for an hour. So you got to get that out of the way. Each thing in its proper time. Helen then drops the nepenthe, or heart seeds, into the wine to ensure forgetfulness of cares. All right. Mm. I will tell this last bit at the beginning of next semester about Odysseus's infiltration of Troy. <laughs>